there'll always be a need just how the need needs to be addressed keeps on evolving let's keep on innovating and let's keep on addressing the need that is there welcome to wise on air the podcast where we talk to the world's leading thinkers and doers in education my name is basem and i'm the producer of the show which was previously known as wise words wise is the global education initiative of the qatar foundation Now today, we're diving into a topic that's close to our hearts here at WISE, innovation in education. In today's rapidly changing world, the traditional model of education is being challenged like never before. New technologies, changing social and economic conditions, and a multitude of other factors are reshaping the way we learn and teach every single day. With these changes come novel initiatives and solutions that are tackling pressing challenges of learning in unconventional ways. But what sets a great solution apart and leads to real impact? What can we learn from those who have succeeded where others have struggled? In this two-part episode, we'll be speaking with six innovators behind the 2022 Wise Awards winning projects to learn what it takes to make a great idea a reality and delve deeper into some of the things they wish they knew when they set out to change education. Joining us in part one are three of those Wise Awards winning project innovators, Susan Matana of Kenya-based Kidogo, Tyler Samstag of Pittsburgh-based Remake Learning, and Jan V. Kanoria of Qatar-based Education Above All. Together, we discuss topics including the eureka moment they had when they created their projects, balancing important stakeholders from beneficiaries to partnerships, key challenges they faced and how they overcame them, and key lessons that they would share with other innovators looking to make change in the education space. Now, be sure to subscribe to Wise on Air to be notified when part two of this conversation comes out with the other three Wise Awards winning innovators in March 2023. But without further ado, I invite you to join me and my fellow WISE colleague Aurelio, who manages the WISE Awards, as we sit down with the minds behind these outstanding projects and explore what it takes to innovate in the education space. I'd like to start off this conversation by just getting to know each other a little more and introducing yourselves to the audience. So maybe we can just start off with a brief introduction Uh, from each of you telling us what's your story and what inspired you to get involved in education and ultimately to the projects that you're leading today. Thank you for having me, Basim and Aurelio. It's uh, lovely to be here representing Education Above All, Otherwise Awards. My name is Janavi Maheshwari Kanoria and I'm the Director of Innovation at Education Above All. What led me into education really was my love for education. Unlike a lot of other people in this world, I had an amazing education experience. I enjoyed school, I enjoyed college, and just recognizing that that's not the norm for most children around the world was a very horrifying reality to me. And therefore it became a bit my life's mission to think about how I can make sure the privileges I had was afforded to everyone. And what got us to this project, which is the Internet Free Education Resource Bank, or IFOP for short, was really the COVID-19 pandemic. So when the pandemic started, the world moved towards digital education. But we recognized that most of the beneficiaries that we work with as education above all did not have access to technology of any kind, no connectivity, very limited resources, and often did not have educators or even literate parents to support their learning from home. So the question was, how do we ensure that these children have some learning continuity because otherwise we're going to have a huge dropout crisis. 
So in an attempt to create more meaningful learning for them, we started actually scouring the internet to see what is out there and how can they actually continue learning. We found very little. So my team and I, we started developing project-based learning resources for these low-resource contexts. So the idea was that children should and can be able to learn from their surroundings and whatever is around them. And even if it is very limited resources, that is okay. And we can still create really interesting, exciting and engaging learning experiences. But then from there, it has grown to be a learning solution that is adapted to in-school context to improve quality of engagement as well as quality of education. It's also been used in emergency contexts, for example, in Ukraine and Afghanistan. And of course, it continues to be used for out-of-school children. So it really is a repository of open-source content, which was developed keeping in mind the children with the lowest resources. Thank you very much, uh, Janvi. We can jump to you, Tyler. My name is Tyler Samsteg. I am the director of Remake Learning. We are a learning ecosystem based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We are located along the east coast of the United States. I, by training, am a practitioner. I was a secondary English teacher, a special education teacher. My first experience in education was doing a year of service with the AmeriCorps in the United States. My first experience was teaching in an alternative school. After that, I formerly was trained as a secondary English teacher in New York City and taught in alternative education settings in New York City for close to a decade. And being trained as a special education teacher, I think that's really shaped my views on education. Um, as a special educator, you go into environments asking how you can constantly shape your instruction to support young people in learning. And so you're, you're constantly innovating. I think by nature, special educators are incredibly innovative. And so over the years, that piqued my interest in how are we continuously innovating within education after about 10 years of le at, since I left Pittsburgh, I did what we often call boomeranging. So I returned back home to Pittsburgh uh, with an interest in learning innovation. And that's when I first was introduced to the Remake Learning Network in the city of Pittsburgh. And as an ecosystem, Remake Learning has built this culture in the city of Pittsburgh that no one organization alone can transform teaching and learning. And so as a network, they strive to bring different organizations together. Just quite naturally, I, I felt like I had a, a home there. I, I found kindred spirits within the network. And then about two years ago, I was brought on as the director of Remake Learning, which has been just an incredible last two years. Amazing. Thank you, Tyler. And last but not least, Susan. Kidogo's story begins a decade ago, whereby one of the founders, Sabrina, was doing a research in a low-income community called Mlolongo. So she went into a room. It was it was poorly lit. It was so dark. And uh, children were just lying down there. And she asked the colleague, like, what is this? She was told this is a baby care center. So children were not stimulated. It was uh, The hygiene was poor. And uh, she asked, are parents paying for this service? She was told, yes, they pay a dollar a day. And she asked herself, how might we offer quality and affordable childcare services to the low-income communities at the same price of a dollar a day? Because you find working mothers in uh, low-income communities have three options if they're, to, if they're supposed to go to work. One, it's either they lock the baby at home 
or pull an older sibling from school or leave the baby in these informal baby care centers. So we decided to professionalize the sector by recruiting the women in women entrepreneurs, we call them mamapreneurs in running the informal baby care centers into the Kinogo network, taking them through a quality improvement program so that they can improve the quality and ensure that they offer a space whereby the child can reach their full potential. So just listening to all of you guys, and I think you've touched upon it a couple of times in, in your introductions. I want to know what was your eureka moment where you realized that you were faced with a challenge, an issue in education, and you had to do something. And you found that moment where you realized, this is what I'm going to do. This is the solution. But what, is there a specific moment that you could recall, a memory that you could tell us about? For me, it was a moment of desperation, really, because uh, it was recognition that if we don't do something for these children, we are going to have such a big problem coming back to work after two years with a crisis of out of school. And I think I was watching my own children play, um, who are now five and seven, but at that time, five and three. And they were playing an imaginary game, pretend play of house house. And while they were kind of serving each other a meal and one was mom, mommy and one was baby, I recognized how much value that pretend play had and how many things I was infusing into that conversation. So I was sort of like, no, give her one cup, no, two cups. And we're suddenly talking about numeracy. We were discussing how, you know, they could pretend read stories to each other uh, as mommy baby. And we were discussing literacy. It came from that moment of watching my children play to think, hey, any experience really can be converted into a learning experience. All we really need to do is design it in a way where it's accessible for everyone and it's not contingent on resources. And it's also not contingent on some very trained facilitator because they're not available. So how can children themselves experiment, discover, practice? How can illiterate mothers, grandmothers, fathers share some of that life wisdom? How do we create a one simple learning object that can have multiple learning mechanisms? So for example, just the history of your family and that family tree, how can that be converted into math by doing mean, median, mode, averages? How can that be converted into literacy by doing essays on your role model? How can that be converted into geography by thinking about migration patterns? So how can you take a single learning object and convert it into many things? That was really the attempt. But it came from my children playing and me probably getting angry with them for disturbing me. Two quick ones. Uh, my first one happened in 2010. It was my first year teaching. I was a high school teacher in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and we had a small group of Arabic-speaking students at our school who really just struggled with access of, of content. And as I got to know these students, I was struggling as a first-year teacher, but I, I grew these connections. And I remember one student saying, sometimes I'm spoken to like I'm stupid, but I'm not. I just I'm struggling with access and the content. And that stuck with me. That resonated with me. That was 2010. So three years after the first iPhone came out. And then a, a second memory is um, the TED Talk of Professor Hugh Herr, who runs the Biomechatronics Lab at MIT's Media Lab. And um, they're just doing incredible work in creating neurally controlled prosthetics. And in that, he, he says a quote that I think about all the time. That people cannot be disabled, 
technology is disabled. And so those two memories together constantly have, have pushed me. How can we leverage technology, which has this incredible power to remove these barriers to learning for, for young people, no matter what those barriers are? And so that that really fuels the work that I do in innovation. In Pittsburgh, our goal is to how can we bring together many, many parties that constantly be pushing what innovation looks like in K-12 education? Okay, for Kidogo, I'll say it was more of like looking at the innocent life of this child uh, who did not choose to be born in the informal settlements, looking at their future and uh, looking at the privilege maybe that you have this time. And it was like, if the first thousand days are the most important, how about acting quick so that the future can be saved of these children? If I may, um, it's it's really interesting to to hear you know the the aha moments uh, when you realize that you know there is a problem that needs to be addressed. But I'm sure these eureka moments, as you said, Basim, they come to many people in many occasions. Not always, uh, however. Uh, can people successfully make those ideas come to life? So one thing that we would love to hear from you is for for any person uh, who has interesting ideas on how to solve problems in education, how can they make uh, those innovations happen? Uh, what what is the ingredient uh, to to actually secret ingredient? <laughs> we'll we'll reveal the the secret now to to make uh, those ideas come to life. Sure, I'm happy to jump in. I don't know if this explicitly answers your question, but uh, Remake Learning, we started, as I shared, in 2007. So we celebrated our 15th birthday this year, which was an incredible milestone for us. I'm incredibly grateful for the, the thousands of people who have contributed to this ecosystem in Pittsburgh and beyond. Uh, this year, we put out a publication called The Pittsburgh Principles that shares some of our learnings from our, our 15 years. And I could share three of those principles that always resonate with me. Uh, the first is learning happens everywhere. And so the success of our ecosystem has been built around that premise that learning happens everywhere and we need to uplift. We need to celebrate all of those many places that learning takes place. Um, the network has really benefited from the principle of making little bets. And so we really kind of adopt that. Um, I heard the phrase earlier today, fail forward. And so we make lots of little bets and some of them are successful. Some of them aren't. We have tried to create this culture where we can make those little bets. We can try those, you know, things that might seem like outlandish ideas. And if they aren't successful, we could potentially learn from it. And then the third is tell our story. And so we've invested a lot across the, the Pittsburgh region and identifying what has been successful, distilling it down into actionable items and telling those stories to hopefully inspire other people to replicate or scale those successes. And maybe to just build off what Tyler was just saying, we're taking on an innovator hat uh, outside of the project that I'm working on. If you really resonate with what the challenge is and deeply understand it and the context, then it's just about trusting your instinct with what you do. I think building that confidence in yourself to trust your instinct is very tough because there is a lot of narrative around how we're risking a child's life with innovation. And the reality is um, in the context that we work, these children have nothing. So any risk that we're taking is a good risk uh, and it is a fail forward risk. So I think what we did was we listened carefully. We started small. We listened some more and we were really, really open to change. 
there were times when we threw out whatever we were innovating on because it wasn't resonating. And I think having that confidence to say this is working or this is not working is a hard one. I actually think awards like this help a lot because it helps build the confidence of an innovator to believe in themselves. And I think that it all comes from that self-belief. Okay, just to add about self-belief, be like, since you've identified the needs, the problem, you are not just creating a solution to something that doesn't exist. It means it exists, which means it's affecting the community. And uh, the context that we come from in Africa, you find like uh, you can't just wait for the government to do some things. But funny thing is once you take the step forward, you'll get the backing and uh, they'll be like, wow, you guys are doing a great thing. That's when they'll start now coming in to chip in and to help you out. So I'll say believe in yourself. If you are supposed to maybe do a rapid test or a prototype to test your idea to prove it, go ahead and do it. Who knows, you might be the first mover and people will rally behind you. Thank you all for your incredible insights. I want to take it a step back and really just ask you to take us through sort of the user experience of your beneficiaries. Really put us through the shoes of, of the people that your projects benefit and give us a sense of what they experience through your projects. I think that would help the listeners. I mean, you have mamapreneurs, for example. Maybe we can go right to, to left this time. So the mama preneur, so mama, then preneur, so some, a, a woman in business. First of all, in Kenya, you find like a ECD is deemed to be a profession for failures. This mama preneur, even if they receive children at their centers, it's deemed as a manual job. In this case, uh, bringing them to the Kidogo program, training them, we train them like in one topic about uh, confidence and personality, just self-awareness teaching them about play-based learning, for example, because uh, they have not gone through formal ECD education. So you are there, you empower them. After that, you also want to show them like this is a business. Maybe you did it out of passion or out of desperation, but this is a business. So how can we professionalize your business and uh, bringing that entrepreneurial mindset to them? And you find that is what most of them, they speak about in their success stories, like when Kibdogo came. And also one thing I'm forgetting, in Africa, you find like we do can because a parent is like, that is how I was raised up. So they'll pinch you, can you, and that is how they discipline the child. And in this case, now you show them like there's something called positive discipline. This is how you need to discipline the child. So it's more of um, a process of unlearning and uh, relearning for them. The good thing is um, at the end of the day, they're seen as professionals like, wow, so you are a teacher. So you are now a dignified entrepreneur in the community with um, lots of uh, information about uh, child care and how to offer quality services. And also at this point, you find like, um, truth be told, there's been issues with their collection rates. A parent will come, drop their child. They don't pay. So teaching them how to how to hold these difficult conversations with their parents and now being in a position like to speak for their business and even to track finances, knowing that this is part of um this is a personal maybe expense and this is a business expense. So at the end of the day, they can run thriving business and even the quality of childcare service that they offer goes high and also their children, the children in the center also benefit from it. And also we uh, we encourage them to talk to the parents, 
to extend learning and play at home. So also parental engagement. So we are shaping the community through them. And that's the success story that they tell when they talk about the before and after joining Kidogo. Amazing. Thank you, Susan. We'll jump to you, Tyler. So first and foremost, I have an incredible team who works with me uh, around Remake Learning. So huge shout out to my team in Pittsburgh. And we see ourselves as stewards of the network. We work in service of the ecosystem. And, and what that actually looks like for us is we call it our, our network support strategies, our, our five C's is what we call them. You know, I was a teacher for close to a decade and it can be a really isolating profession. Uh, you might have great ideas on how to innovate in education, but not sure where to go outside of your classroom. And so um, from the ecosystemic lens, we, as I shared, we call them our five C's and I'll go through them really quickly. And each one of these five C's are a way that anybody in the region can connect with Remake Learning. And so the, the first is communicate. We offer kind of a, a unified hub across the region that breaks down silos in communication. And so as a teacher, you might not know where to turn our website, our mailing list, our social media, all aim to offer a resource to point people in the direction of all the incredible opportunities that are taking place across southwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, we convene, we bring people together around the table who otherwise might not be together around the table. And so we do things like lunch and learns. And so if the topic is maker spaces, we might have somebody from Carnegie Mellon University, Elizabeth Ford School District, um, from Prototype, all different approaches to the same topic around the same table sharing to give people insights on what this looks like in different environments. Quite naturally, as you bring people together, you start to recognize that there are topics of shared interest and, and these surface, as I shared, quite organically. And as that happens, we start to bring together people to coordinate around these. And we do so through working groups. We currently offer four active working groups. We have uh, the STEM ecosystem, which is part of the national STEM ecosystem work. We have CS for PGH, which is a focus on computer science. We have one that is focused on maker learning, our maker learning collaborative, looking at hands-on pedagogies around maker education. And then our fourth and most recent one is our personalized learning network, focused on what personalized learning looks like in this era of education. So we communicate, we convene, we coordinate. As we coordinate, great ideas start to come together. You know, people start to think about what if we can work together, what could that look like? And so we catalyze. We offer various grant opportunities. Uh, some of these are mini grants of just around a couple hundred dollars to take an idea and make it a reality. Some of these are larger kind of systemic grant opportunities like our current one, the Moonshot Grants. And then lastly, as we start to see transformation take place across the region in our libraries and our museums and our classrooms, we celebrate and we champion. And so we shine a light on those successes. We do so through things like publications. And then we have our Remake Learning Days festivals, which invites organizations to open their doors in the same two weeks in May every year and showcase what hands-on engaging learning looks like in your environment. And so uh, what started in Pittsburgh in 2016 has expanded to regions across the United States. And in 2023, we are going global with three um, international festivals, which we're super excited about. Amazing. Yeah. So can you give me a specific example of how those grants turn into something tangible? Yeah, I mean, I, you mentioned publications, but is it, does it go beyond written work or does it actually lead to full-on projects in the field? So a, a small grant might be a teacher who goes to one of our computer science events and hears about what robotics looks like 
in Carnegie Mellon University has an idea of how they can integrate robotics into their elementary classroom. And so a small grant might provide them the, the resources to buy a classroom set of robotics. That's a kind of localized one. Our Moonshot grants, we're inviting organizations to think really boldly about what they want teaching and learning to look like in 10 years and to propose an idea of something they could pilot today that will accelerate movement in that direction. And so an example of that is the California area school district, a small rural district about 45 minutes outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, They were inspired by IEPs, individualized education programs, oftentimes used for special education. And their idea was, what if all students could have an IEP? And so they did a, a small pilot with about 25 students for they got rid of grade levels and they got rid of grades as a, a form of assessment and, and just piloted this, this with a small group of students. And since that pilot that has scaled to, I think they're close to 100 students, really remarkable work. So uh, as I mentioned to you, we have an open repository of content that we've developed for all resource, all low resource contexts. And what typically happens is our partners come to us who are typically NGOs on the ground and they come to us and they give us context that they operate in. They sometimes operate in schools, they sometimes operate in places where there are no schools and the children are out of school, they're sometimes operating in emergency contexts. And what we do is we ask them specifically, what are the needs of the children in your geography? What are you trying to solve for? It could be social emotional learning, it could be literacy and numeracy, it could be engagement. It could be 21st century skills. So they give us that problem statement. We sort of evolve it with them. And then based on that, we help them select resources from our bank. We then train them on how to contextualize it for wherever they operate. We then give them training on how to implement it. And we give them monitoring and evaluation tools. And then we support them on that whole journey. When we get feedback from the community, this is working, this is not working. How do you talk to parents? What do you do with teachers? How do you train facilitators? So we support them along that entire journey. And for a child, the experience could be very varied. It really depends on where we're using it and for what. So there are villages in India where during the COVID-19 pandemic, they used uh, the loudspeakers, which are outside religious institutions, broadcast instructions. Uh, so that children could actually access them. There are places in Zambia where they used radio or sometimes when they had nothing, they painted the instructions on the village wall. And then there are schools in Kenya where it's being used to ensure that kids come back to schools. And then there are refugee camps in the US where we're working with Afghan children, which are typically military bases. So it really depends on where the context is and how the instruction is delivered. Sometimes it's incorporated into the curriculum and so it just sort of reflects what they're learning and it's a conceptual understanding and sometimes it doesn't. But what we do is we really focus on getting feedback from the ground in terms of what their needs are, but also what's working and what's not. And very often we then develop resources as a response to them. One uh, example of that was when there was a large flood that happened in a particular area in India, which we were working in. We were sort of told by our partners and prompted to say, can you think about something related to floods? And we said, absolutely. So we created a whole project which was focused on why floods happen through experiments children understand human actions which cause flooding. They then created evacuation plans for their own village in case there are floods including understanding what are essential items that they should carry with them and why. And then they learned density by creating life jackets, which were designed from discarded plastic bottles. 
So it was a project which incorporated geography and science, but it was focused on something that they were facing. You mentioned uh, the role of partners, Janvi, uh, you as well, Tyler, and you as well, Susan. So maybe if you could tell a bit more uh, how you engage with the partners, how you identify them, and how they help advance the impact and, and improve that the work that you're doing is is impactful in a way. So we have been very fortunate in the sense that partners have constantly been approaching us since the beginning of our journey, perhaps because of how timely the solution was and how needed it was for the COVID context and then soon after. What we really realized from the ground was that our partners fully understand the context that they operate in. They know these communities, they know how to mobilize them, they know how to support them, they know how to make the government systems work for their benefit. What they don't necessarily have time and space for is to develop that content. So we are playing that role which they frankly just don't have the mental space for. So we give them that content, we give them that training, we give them that support. But really, everything that we need to know about why, what and how this is going to be done comes from them. So they've come up with ideas on this is how we can implement it. We should do this as an after-school program because we want to engage the community. Or we should do this in school because we want to illustrate this to the government. That comes from them. The resources and the needs of the learners comes from them. We just try and tell them then this is the content you require. This is what we will develop and design for you. This is how we will train you. And what we've seen with our partners is the first few projects, because it is the real pedagogical shift to think of project-based learning and suddenly have student voice and choice and have teachers not having a very set scripted set of instructions, no textbooks. Because it's such a big leap, the first few projects is uh, very unnerving. And uh, everyone is a little bit nervous about how it's going to go. And they're also not confident at all that they'll be able to do it. And they keep asking us for more scripted lessons. But there's some magic that happens. So after the first five projects, suddenly you see the children are more engaged. You see that the teachers are just very confident. You see that the partners are sort of, you know, in control. And what they've done for us is they've expanded and scaled it themselves. So after we do usually pilot projects or proofs of concept with them, the partners take it on. Now they've adopted the mechanism, the methodology, the pedagogical approach, and then they continue doing it. They lobby for it. They advocate for it. And that's hugely meaningful because that really means we're creating systemic change through them in different parts of the world and empowering them then to become their own champions. That's very encouraging to hear. I'm curious, you know, when you do initiate these uh, projects uh, and you face that resistance early on, how do you go about that? You know, what where, what takes you from point A where they're still getting over that hurdle to point B where, you know, they're finally getting their heads wrapped around this new format and they're just expanding it from their own end? A lot of tears. No, I'm joking. I don't mean a lot of tears. Actually, what happens is the resistance is different from different pockets. For the teacher or the facilitator and sometimes the parent because we don't have a teacher, we, similarly to what Susan was saying, we've almost exalted our teachers to the extent where a parent who is not that literate is afraid to take on a role of educating their own child. So it's sometimes breaking that down to say learning, similar to what Tyler was saying, happens everywhere all the time. And it does not matter if you do not have a very trained teacher to do that. You have a lot of wisdom. You have a lot of life lessons and you can absolutely help your children. There's also a lot of fear with parents when they see their children having fun and experimenting to say, where are the worksheets? 
how are they going to pass the exams? Is this really going to help them advance in schooling? Because, you know, at the end of the day, there's a job to be had and money to be made. So for each of these different demographics, we've tried very different things. For the parents, we often don't talk about 21st century skills. But what we do tell them is, okay, so your child is, in your mind, jumping around on a mud line outside your home. Actually, that's a number line that they're practicing math on. But, you know, let's just assume that, that that's what it is. Why don't you test them after a week on this and this and this? Let's see if you think that they've grown. And suddenly parents are like, oh, I'm testing them on sort of conventional tests, but they are learning and growing. And that's fantastic. So the parents slowly start buying into it. And then we gradually ask them questions like, but have you seen changes in communication? What about creativity? And then they'll start answering questions. Yeah, that's true. They're suddenly more confident. They're this, they're this. So that's where the parents suddenly start shifting their mindset. When it comes to the children, it's about again and again just telling them it's okay and rewarding them for the effort and for the experimentation and not for the end product. And gradually children build so much confidence that they amaze us. They create things which are well beyond what we had designed in the project. They take it to levels which we can't imagine. For example, we had a project about designing your house rules for COVID just for your home. In most of the places we went, children reached the point where they were deciding village rules for, their, for COVID for the entire village. And they were deciding it with the head of the village. And that's incredible. But so children, once unleashed and unbridled, can do a lot. It just takes that little bit of a journey to get there. I saw you taking a lot of notes there, Tyler. Uh, are you taking a couple of points of inspiration? Or do you, uh, I imagine you may have a couple of reflections to share with us yourself. A little bit of both, I guess. <laughs> just trying to capture my ideas down. So built upon this notion, this premise of we work better when we work together, Remake Learning is the, the stewards of this ecosystem, this regional ecosystem. Partnership is valued. And it is something that we strive to to support others in forging. And so as a, an, a network of educators and innovators in the city, we use that term educators really loosely. And so for us, educators include artists, learning scientists, teachers, out-of-school time educators, librarians, industry partners, etc. And so, you know, I think three kind of loose categories that we um, find our members falling within, and this is not all-encompassing. Uh, we have researchers and learning scientists. And so these are our folks in schools of education at our universities, but also um, schools of psychology, schools of neuroscience that are really kind of forging new understandings on how young people develop, how we learn. The second category is organizations who are doing research and development. And a lot of, for in the city of Pittsburgh, a lot of that is happening in our universities, like the Carnegie Mellon University Entertainment of Technology that are really kind of pushing thinking around gaming and, and experiences of learning. And then we have our, our practitioners. And again, these are classroom teachers, but they're out of school time educators, librarians, et cetera. And for us, the, the magic is in that spark at the intersection of all three of these, because um, we see that it's really key that development in all of these spaces incorporate each of these categories. And so, so for us, that sweet spot is how can we make partnership normal? How can we normalize it? And then how can we forge partners among unlikely partners? And so um, partnership is key to the work that we do. And eloquently said, if I do say. Okay, so the primary way or the organic way whereby we 
accelerate our um, our program is through the social franchising approach. But just after COVID, we were like, uh, can we also try exponential growth through partners? Just to echo what I hear said, we have research partners who are like, okay, is Kidogo model working, looking at the child outcomes? Also, um, there's another research ongoing, just looking at assuming we solve the childcare crisis. Are the parents going to work and earn a dignified uh, livelihood? Just looking at it from a research perspective, so it's like um, more of a women economic empowerment. And uh, the other bit of the partners that we work with is in the policy and advocacy space. As I earlier mentioned in Kenya, the below four years, whereby it's an unregulated sector, and the childcare is devolved to the different county governments. So you find in county government A, maybe they have regulations. County government B no draft thing, no bill and all that. So we work with partners and uh, all thought partners just to to try to push this forward. And then uh, the other interesting bit is in terms of um, program implementation or uh, let me call it maybe offering technical assistance. For example, we have um, in Kenya a woman who is locked in prison and has a child below five years that are allowed to go with the child in prison. So our vision is in Kidogo, we say like uh, we imagine a world where all children have the opportunity to reach their full potential. So in this case, what about the under five child who has been locked in the prison? So like um, we have uh, what we call workplace partnerships. In this case, um, like uh, in that one now, we, we partnered with an organization that has programs in the prison because you can't just enter the prison like that. And then uh, through them, we managed to reach the, the children. Or for example, in uh, tea factories, you find a woman will be carrying their child on their back. It's very cold, maybe as they are plucking tea. So in that case, how about setting on-site or a near-site child care center near the factory? So you find like it's either we work with the partner or the employer or a partner organization to ensure that we reach or we, we bring a solution to to that problem or offering technical assistance maybe to a caregiver who will take care of that. All really interesting insights. Thank you all so much for sharing those. Maybe we can wrap this conversation up. I mean, we could go longer than this, but we want to let you guys off the hook. Maybe we could uh, leave the listeners with just a main sort of food for thought from innovators of the field of education. What do you wish you could have told yourself five, ten years ago as a budding entrepreneur or a budding innovator in the field about something you wish you knew about innovation in education or how to innovate? One key lesson. To me, I'll say like um, there'll always be a need, just that uh, how the need needs to be addressed keeps on evolving. So even as an innovator in education, just thinking about how can we keep on um, just adapting the solution to the new context. Just uh, a simple one you can look at the pre-COVID and post-COVID. So much has changed. So let's keep on innovating and uh, let's keep on addressing the need that is there. So first and foremost, this is really just an incredible honor for myself for Remake Learning. I'm just so incredibly grateful for this distinction of the WISE Award. That said, I think something that really sticks out to me is how deeply regional this work is for us at Remake Learning. And I think why we've experienced the success that we have is that we've really leaned into that, that regional aspect of the work. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we have these two, I think, dominant 
legacies that we lean into. We are Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Mr. Rogers, you know, he had a television show, an education television show for decades, and, and many generations grew up watching Mr. Rogers. It was filmed in Pittsburgh. He was an innovator. He was one of the first people to leverage this new technology of television to deliver educational content. What a lot of people don't know is that pretty much everything he did was informed by the learning sciences. He had a, a deep relationship with the University of Pittsburgh, and so everything he did was informed. So it is that kind of intersection of innovation with the learning sciences, and I think it's a, a beautiful legacy. And then we are the Steel City. We're known as the Steel City. Um, Pittsburgh, we often say, uh, we are not New York, but we built New York. And so Pittsburgh was a, a primary steel producer for, for generations, and that legacy ended in the 80s and, and had really huge impact on the city. But we lean into that because by nature, within our DNA, we are makers. And so um, these are two legacies that we, we lean into, and I think it's embedded in the DNA of the work that we do. So innovation, I would say, is deeply regional, deeply local work. And I think that's a beautiful lesson I've learned along the way. So I think mine is just that there often is a fixed definition of innovation, and we believe it has to be something novel, new, never been tried before, often. The other thing is that we have this, again, a very deep embedded thought about taking risks and the idea of how everything we do has to be perfect. And I just want to challenge both those notions today. I think the first is just that innovation is pretty much embedded in everything we do. It can be small, it can be broad, it can be a tiny micro step. It can be something that worked somewhere else and didn't work here. It could be the same thing done slightly differently. And it really depends on the context and the constraints on the ground and to be really carefully listening to what those are so that we can solve for them is what innovation really is. We really require multiple, multiple ways in which we deliver design and develop education today. And if we're not innovating those, we've really been learned nothing from this pandemic. So I think that's the first part. And I think the second part is around this question of risks and aspiring to be perfect. If anyone here has been in a classroom or has been a teacher, you know that the most perfect lesson plan devolves into something completely different the minute it hits that room and there is some magic that happens in that interaction. And I think a lot of it, therefore, is to do our best to understand what we can do to ensure that we're empowering both those individuals in that space and then let the magic take it where it goes. And I often feel like with our monitoring and evaluation frameworks, we almost limit how much can happen and we almost constrain the potential by ensuring that we've set specific targets in specific areas. But I think what we've established through this conversation is learning is not one dimensional. So there isn't just math happening in a math class and there isn't just social emotional learning happening in that class. And the beautiful confluence of all of it is what happens. And so if we are not constrained by what innovation is and what it can deliver, I think we can all do so much more with it. Thank you so much to all of you and congratulations. And thank you so much for joining me on Wise On Air. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed this episode and gained valuable insights from these Wise Awards winning innovators. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps out a lot. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Wise On Air, we'd love to hear from you. 
You can reach out to us anytime on our social media platforms through the links in the description. Don't forget to subscribe to Wise On Air on wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of our upcoming episodes. We'll be back next month with part two of this conversation with three other innovators representing the remaining batch of the 2022 Wise Awards winning projects. So stay tuned. Until then, keep on learning and thank you very much for listening to Wise On Air.